Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who fourteen years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. 2 Corinthians 12 Hello, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zoe and Heidi and David Apple to talk about the book of Revelation and heaven. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing well, Willie. Doing well, Zelwyn. Good to be on with you guys again. Well, good. Good to have you here. How is the weather down in Paducah? Spring weather, so we get, you know, three or four days of sunshine and then three or four days of lots and lots of rain. Today, as we're recording this, uh, we're in the middle of a little bit of a rain spell. So the ground is just always wet, always spongy, but all the trees are flowering, which is great to see. The dogwoods haven't uh, opened up yet, but they're coming. Won't be long now. Did you guys ever see like in every ant and ant-like person's living room growing up a painting that said the legend of the dogwood tree on it? You guys never had that bit of kitsch in your life? I never had the kitsch, but I had the substance of it. Sure, sure. (laughs) Having not seen it, you can still perceive what I'm talking about here. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Somebody somebody out there listening might have that in their living room. I don't mean to insult them on that. It's just I used to see it a lot. Not a a different feel from the footprints in the sand, but definitely in the same genre. Yeah. Uh Are you familiar, speaking of these things, are you familiar with the sand dollars? There, there's one that has the sand dollar, which contains the doves of peace within it. That is uh, new to me. Oh well, you've got you haven't quite lived yet, Willie. We need, that's, we, th- that's third we, heaven stuff. We right need to there. do a, a, an episode now on regional religious kitsch. Let's, gonna, let's do it. <laughs> hey, Zelwyn, how's the weather up your way? The weather's good. Uh, on the day that we're recording this, it actually rained a little bit, which is good for us. I mean, because we're in a bit of a, a dry spell at the moment, and we're happy and thankful for any rain that we're going to get. We're not quite into spring yet. I mean, winter comes early and stays long this far north, so I don't suspect that it's really going to green up for another several weeks, but looking forward to being able to get into the garden and, and to really dig in this year. Well, you might be able to hear on my microphone, it's a bit windy here right now. So windy, in fact, I can't escape the sound of it. But that is, uh, that's how we live out here in the deforested prairie that is central Illinois. And that's fine. We need it. We got the, you know, the, that's your industrial agriculture for you. But no, no, we've had a little bit of rain, which is good. Uh, we've had a lot of wind. Um, we had nearly lost the chicken run earlier this week because of the wind, but we found it. Um, all the way uh, from the backyard across the street into a neighboring field. So we got it back. The one little Wizard of Oz on us here. But it's good to have mild weather-related issues because it teaches us a lot about the hand of providence and the, <laughs> and the fall of man. This is true. Do Have you been approached about uh, windmills in your backyard yet? Is oh, that a they, thing they are shilling the windmills everywhere now. And yeah, there's going to be a uh, <laughs> windmill farms coming right down the main road in front of the house in the next few years, it sounds like. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, you're just seeing uh, the turbines everywhere. They're they're just, you see them on, on trucks everywhere going. So the, the farmland is going to look rather different here in the next few years. And honestly, it's like, 
it's like <laughs> these guys are going around selling these these wind turbines, these windmills, like they're trying to sell Springfield a monorail. I mean, it's it's amazing. <laughs> and, and they're giving them like these spiels like that, and people are just eating it all up. I mean, I can't say that they're literally doing song and dance, but I'm not invited to the meetings. I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely it's Springfield's monorail here. Sounds suspiciously Masonic. That's but. right. We'll have to check out Broadway, Ogdenville, and North Haverbrook, see how they fared uh, on their projects. So, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. So, but before, now that we've offended all of the pro wind people, uh, now I guess we'll move on into Revelation and, and continue, to, <laughs> continue to offend more. So, we've got, so we've, we've backed off the windmill folk, and now we're backing off the, dis, the Dispies once again. So, uh, yeah, so now we're going to talk about Revelation. We're really going to look at chapters four and five here for most of the episode, uh, dealing with heavenly visions. So it's been a fun walkthrough through Revelation so far. So, David, why don't we uh, dive right in? Yeah, so we we started the episode with a reading from uh, where St. Paul is talking about a time when he was caught up into what he calls the third heaven. And as we continue going through the book of Revelation here, chapters four and five, these are well-known chapters, probably better known than the letters that we've been spending that we did a couple episodes on. Uh, but this is really where the visions of the vision of St. John really takes over its visionary character, I guess. I mean, he's already seen the risen Lord Jesus that happens in chapter one. And then two and three are all the words that Jesus tells him to write down and, and take to the churches. But now in chapter four, you get the, he's going to start seeing things again. Of course, the difference, you know, we read in, in uh, second Corinthians there, St. Paul is told that he can't talk about what he saw, whether those things were just beyond the ability of, of Paul to put into words or whatever. John, of course, is explicitly told, I'm going to, sh- you're going to see what's about to happen. And the reason you're seeing it is so that you would write it down. Well, to be fair, though, many of the things which even John is seeing are still described in very guarded kind of terms. You know, he, he says, I yes. heard one speaking like a trumpet. The one who's sitting there has an appearance like this, you know, has the appearance of an emerald. So there's always this kind of Ezekiel-like distancing himself from what he's actually seeing because he knows that no matter what he writes, it's always going to fall short of the of the reality of what he sees. Yeah. Right. And that's not and that's not just because when he sees the metal locusts, he's seeing Apache helicopters that, um, you know, he doesn't know what those things are yet. It's but you're you are right. There are certain phrases. It was like this or as it were is one that you often encounter as you're reading through the book. I saw as it were an emerald rainbow. I saw something like this. And so there's always this um, he's reaching for. How do, how do I even put this into the right language? Yeah, so so where do, how do we want to start our discussion then? You know, Willie or David, you know, where, where do we want to go from here? Well, David, I believe that you, you wanted to take a look at the Old Testament antecedents here. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that is, that's always intriguing and a, a bit, I don't know, this is maybe saying it too harshly, off-putting about the book of Revelation is that it is so different from, say, the rest of the New Testament. I was trying to think of analogies to what happens with Jesus in his earthly ministry, 
And maybe you could say the transfiguration is something like an apocalyptic vision. You know, the the face starts to shine like the sun and uh, the clothing becomes whiter than any fuller on earth could make it. So you have something like a heavenly vision there. But if you're looking for parallels to John's vision into heaven, especially in chapters four and five, um, you don't really find it in the New Testament. You certainly don't see it in the epistles. And uh, of course, just by nature of the gospels, you're not going to see it there. So if you are looking for precedent for this or something to compare it to, you can look back into the Old Testament. And we do have some apocalyptic books there, similar genre. But uh, we're going to go through a couple of those here in a minute, even within the genre of apocalyptic writings. I think that these visions, the detailed visions of heaven, are unique to Revelation, at least within the canonical books. Are we allowed to say canonical books, Willie? I'll allow it this time. As okay, long we as don't, I, yeah. We don't have to say prophetic and apostolic. No, no, we actually scripture. subscribe to the whole of Scripture here, at okay. word fitly spoken. All right. Yes. All right. <laughs> so let me let me just do it this way. If you the the first couple of I'm just going to read the first two verses in Revelation four because that sets the the background here. After this, that is after the the writings, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, "Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this." At once I was in the spirit, and behold. A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So the voice here goes back to chapter one. It was the voice of the Lord who had spoken with him back in chapter one. And now he's being taken up from Patmos, up from the island, through this door into heaven. Okay. And that's where he sees, that's kind of the vantage point, you might say, for the the rest of the book. He's going to move around a little bit. But I think it's it's worth noting here and maybe emphasizing this. We start in heaven. We start with this vision and everything that follows comes as kind of a consequence of what we're about to see happening there in heaven. Yeah, because I know that sometimes in the book of Revelation, like I think especially in like verse uh, chapter 13, for example, where it says, you know, I stood on the sand of the sea. So sometimes John is going to come down back to earth and see some of his, what he's writing about from the perspective of what is happening on earth. But there is a great deal of the book that is written, like you say, from the perspective of heaven. So where John is standing in the, the, the all these different books is an interesting question in itself. But what kind of antecedents did you want to, to talk about specifically? Well, let's just let's just go through a couple of the, the Old Testament heavenly visions, uh, by which I mean, let me specify what I mean by that. I, I don't mean what we usually call theophanies, to use a technical term that uh, some people love the term, but I don't mean like the burning bush or God visiting Abraham with the two visitors in Genesis. I mean times where people are entering into heaven. The prophets have a vision into heaven and describe something of what they see there. So the first one that is, is maybe, and I think what we'll find in all of these is that none of them have the same detail that you have in Revelation. And we can talk about maybe why that is. 
But the first one that came to my mind, if you remember to um, Exodus 24, where after the giving of the Ten Commandments, Moses and the elders go up Mount Sinai, and I believe Aaron goes with them. And they get to the top of the mountain, and they see the God of Israel. And he has under his feet, as it were, a sapphire pavement, right? And they they have a feast there with God. But that's really all that it says about that heavenly vision. You get the detail about what's underneath his feet. And the, the picture, I think, is meant to, to for us to think of the entire sky is God's footstool, right? The whole thing lies under his feet. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how else you would interpret, you know, a sapphire-colored stone being under his feet. And I also, because we actually talked about this at a Bible study, I also mentioned that, you know, all even if all they are seeing is God's feet, you know, that is still a tremendous vision of God, because after all, Isaiah himself in Isaiah chapter 6 sees the train of his robe and is overcome with terror, you know, thinking that he's going to die. So even if we don't think that his seeing his feet is very much, it is still a vision of God. But then again, not in the same way that, you know, John is having a vision of God in Revelation 4. Yeah, yeah. So just very few, the thing to notice there, very few verses about, you know, who else is there, what they're seeing in heaven, and really even what they're doing. I think it talks about they ate with the God of Israel, but I don't recall now if it, you know, the menu is not described at length. It's not, no. So uh, another one, just to kind of get these, the Old Testament precedents, we wouldn't call this apocalyptic, but if you remember how the book of Job begins, you get a couple of mentions, I think in both chapters one and two, that the sons of God, by which we're to take the angels, are assembled in God's council room, so to speak. And the Lord speaks then with the devil and, you know, he says, where, where have you come from? And the devil, you remember his famous words, I've been going to and fro through the earth. And the thing I want to highlight with Job's vision there, or whoever is the author of Job, is that there is business being carried out in heaven that then influences earth. So I just, I just want to um, establish this at the beginning because it's going to be important in the book of Revelation. Heaven is not like the escape room from earth. Heaven is the, the God's council room or God's throne room is how we'll, we'll see it in the book of Revelation. And what happens in heaven then is carried out on earth. There is an interplay between the two. And that's going to be important because when Jesus takes the throne in heaven, now his his reign, his rule is going to be extended from heaven down to earth. And if you think of the whole book of Revelation, that's the, you know, the view from 5,000 miles up above is the heavenly rule of Jesus is going to be joined to earth and there's not going to be a divide between the two anymore. Well, I suppose if you want to go that route, you could also bring in Micaiah, and, you know, his his vision of the Lord and that the Lord was going to send a lying spirit among the prophets so as to deceive Ahab. I know. So, yeah, there is an there is an intimate connection then between what is happening in heaven and even in some sense what is happening in very particular circumstances on earth. You know, that God is going to lead Ahab to his death by means of these lying prophets. 
you know, stuff like that. So, right. I think sometimes if people have the, this is just for our friend, Adam, who knows all of our pop culture references, (laughs) the, if, if people have the vision of heaven as like the happy Gilmore, happy place, you know, where (laughs) that's where you escape from earth and you go up to, you know, someday I'm going to get away from all this stuff and I'm going to have my little escape room in heaven where I have all the good things um, that I want. I, I don't think you you find that in the Bible, of course. And what you find is actually something much more, much more connected between heaven and earth. Yes, of course, there's rest from labors, and we're going to see that uh, eventually in the book of Revelation. But God's council room or God's throne room is not meant to be this disconnected thing from what happens on earth. Right. And eventually, I mean, the new heavens and the new earth will come together at the end of days. Right. And it's a very important thing. Um, heaven is not always going to be ethereal, and it's certainly not a Philadelphia cream cheese commercial or something like that. We've developed a rather hedonistic view of heaven, as you rightly point out. You know, even Lutherans can, can run into this, where they only focus upon the feasting and the wine in heaven. Right. You know, and not and not the, uh, the worship and the, I don't want to say work, but activity in heaven. Yeah. And it almost becomes then something like, you know, I want to escape from this world so I can go to heaven and be away from this world. And I I understand why people want that, because the world is very evil. But the heavenly hope that we have, I think, ought to kind of do the just the opposite to us. Instead of desiring to escape from everything, it should give us the courage and the confidence to actually, you know, in a sense, work harder, right? To not to not say, I want to get away from all this, but to say, eventually, God's rule is going to be carried out on earth. And well, like we say in the Lord's Prayer, let thy will be done on earth now as it is always done in heaven. Well, I mean, what would what would distinguish, say, this more hedonistic view of heaven as a kind of escapism from, I don't know, the Islamic view of paradise? You know, I mean, it's, it's just this idea, are we looking forward to some sort of you know, party writ large, all the best things of earth, but, you know, in a, in a greater way, or are we actually looking forward to something greater, you know, something that eye has not seen or ear has not heard and something that, like you say, is going to unite heaven and earth into being what it should have been all along. If Jesus is sort of ancillary to your, the hope that you have of what's going to go on in heaven, you know, you're on the, you're on a bad track, right? right. Hey, Jesus might be there too. And I guess that would be okay, huh? <laughs> I remember one time listening to some famous evangelical guy. I They're a litigious group, so I'm not going to name a name just yet. But his name rhymes with Bax Mukado. And he, and he said, he said uh, you know, we don't know what heaven will be like. You might find yourself golfing on Saturn. Now, he's right. I don't know what heaven's going to be like. 100% guarantee you won't be golfing on Saturn. And it was just this whole list of just silly things. And it's like, why would anyone hope in that? I mean, yeah. I mean, I know there's something about a childlike faith, but that's kind of a juvenile hope, you know? Will I get to golf on Saturn? And everybody knows from Beetlejuice that Saturn's full of sandworms anyway. Well, exactly. Okay, we have hit our pop culture uh, quota for the episode, folks. I'm sorry. <laughs> Zellan, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I mean, because if, if, if your hope is just to, you know, go golfing on Saturn where the sandworms are, 
how does that give you actual hope in the midst of suffering? You know, I, I think it is kind of a very hedonistic way of looking at it because it doesn't actually take into account, you know, the, the hope of people who are legitimately suffering as they are, say, in the book, in the, book the beginning of the book of, of Revelation, are not looking forward to just, oh, I get to do all my favorite things, but I get to do them in a, in a, in a bigger way. They're looking forward to being with the Lord who's going to give them the justice they could not find. Right. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong to look for a reunion for the saints who are in heaven, the ones who are together. I think that there's a very right and proper way to look at that. There's also kind of a pagan way to look at that, too, right. to where it only right. becomes about that sort of thing. Or you think that everybody's going to be there, um, that it's ultimately a great reversal of everything. And that's not true either. Not in that sense. Right. And so, uh, yeah, um, there, there's just a lot of false understandings of of the afterlife, but you know, a joyous reunion is part of it. We don't want to talk about that. You're just not going to be golfing on Saturday. Yeah. Let let me give you another example from the old Testament that kind of, I think will, will help to reinforce this point that what happens in heaven impacts what goes on on earth, right? There's not this big divide. Think of Isaiah seeing into heaven. He is not given that vision of the Lord and the train of his robe and the seraphim just so he can kind of like hear what happens in heaven? What do, what do the angels do all day in heaven? And of course, they sing, holy, holy, holy. But what happens in that vision is that Isaiah is called and ordained and sent back into the world. And th that's what I mean by the, the heavenly visions are not to escape from life in the world, but they are they drive, in Isaiah's case, they drive Isaiah back into the world. So he's got this um, mission now that he has seen into heaven. And I, I want to, maybe this is a stretch, you guys can tell me, but I think that when we see in Revelation chapters four and five, we don't want to separate those from everything that follows, right? So like, well, John, first Jesus gives John this happy vision, and then he gives him all these bad visions. It's all one vision. And it starts in heaven with a, a victorious scene so that you get the right um, context, the right kind of setting, the tone for the rest of the book. This is going to be a story of how the Lamb's victory is brought from heaven down to earth. Very good. Well, hey, we're, we've got to take our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken after this. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken.
Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and David Appled, talking about the book of Revelation, in particular, the heavenly vision. So we talked a bit about heaven in the Old Testament and heaven in the Bible in general, some of the misconceptions that we see. Now, David, take us on into Revelation chapter 4. Yeah, so uh, chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation, you get a lot of detail about what heaven is like. Um, not everything is described, but uh, the very first thing, uh, let, maybe I should do it this way. The big picture here is this. You're, we're going to see the throne of God, God on the throne, and the Lamb of God is brought before the throne of God, and he's going to open up or he's going to take a scroll. And what happens in the meantime is everybody who's there is singing. Um, do you think, is that a fair, I'm trying to think of how to condense that into like two sentences. I think that's a fair description of what happens in the vision. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think you've kind of captured it. I mean, obviously it's skipping over many of the, the main details, but, yeah. but yeah, I, I would say you've summarized it decently. So, and the, well, the reason I want to start there is just so that we see there's something happens here. It's there is action. So there is a um, there's even a problem that is resolved, and the problem is no one can open this scroll until the Lamb appears. And once the Lamb appears, then everybody rejoices, not just because they see the Lamb, but because now he is able to he's going to open the scroll. And the reason I start there is because I want to emphasize something I said before in the first segment too. The scroll that that Jesus is going to open has the seven seals, and as he breaks the seals, John is going to see other things. He's going to see the four horsemen ride out through the whole world, and we'll do a whole episode on the seven seals and what happens when each is broken. But all of that starts, and all of it is seen, I would say, from this vision. It is a consequence of Jesus coming to the throne of God. And you know, now we can we can probably go into the details, but I just want to have that big picture view before we get because there there's going to be a tendency um, as you read the book to you know be absorbed in individual details and lose sight of the big the big picture. Sure. So, what kind of details do you want to focus on first? Then, well, I think we can just uh, go right through it, don't you think, guys? I mean, I think just yeah, taking one at a time. So, the first thing that you see in heaven is a throne. And so you get the picture. This is heaven is God's throne room. There's a number of of passages in the Old Testament that would come to mind, but he's going to carry out, we're going to see a king and he's going to be ruling from his throne. Maybe in the background here, you can think of the throne that Daniel sees when the in his vision, when the son of man is brought before the ancient of days there's not quite as much description of the throne itself, but that's the very first detail is a throne and there's someone sitting on the throne. And it, I think it's very interesting here that this would be one of the occasions where we have a description of some kind of the father, right? Because obviously the one who is seated on the throne is, is a representation of the father, especially since the lamb is, you know, comes to him. Yes. And he's, you know, he's also described as having the spirits, uh, the spirit around him, all that sort of thing. So um, and it's, I think it's also interesting that he's described as having, you know, the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and, you know, with the rainbow around it and all that. But I mean, what, what are we to make of this vision of God the Father? 
Yeah, there's there's not a lot of detail. I know I, I can't remember who the commentator is who says no one ever sees God. There's no description of God on the throne. That's not you know quite technically true because here there is a description. Um, he's he is has these jewels, and there's going to be the gates of the city and the foundations of the city at the end of the book in chapters 21 and 22 are described with these jewels. And I, I think the, obviously the, the richness of the jewel, the, the majesty that would be conveyed with them, um, the sense of holiness. And I, I don't know if power would be connected with those things, but definitely the, the idea is this is a king that you're coming to, and he's not just any king, he's the great king. Well, it is interesting, though, that all the detail we get about him is just that he's seated and that he looks like these precious stones. <laughs> I mean, that that's that's not much to go on. <laughs> well, and they're they're interesting because they're it's Jasper, Sardine Stone and Emerald. Right. So red and green. But right. he, but he's not Irish, maybe Italian. <laughs> but surely, but it, it is interesting, you know, I mean, we could spend too much time talking about the significance of Jasper and Sardius stone if we wanted to, um, because there are Old Testament parallels happening here between ex- between Exodus 28, for example, yeah. And, yeah. and Revelation 21. Yeah, in the in the high priest's breastplate, right, he has these different stones that represent the tribes of Israel. Um, and maybe this this would be a, a good connection with the holy as the as the high priest was vested with the holy vestments. God the Father, it, he is not vested with holy things. He is simply holy, right, in and of himself. And I mean, so you've got the, the Sardius stone, right, which is Reuben's stone, if I'm not mistaken, and Jasper is Benjamin's in Exodus. I'm, I think I'm right on this. Who knows? Who knows if there's any significance? I'm going to throw that out at you right now. <laughs> well, that would be the oldest and the youngest. I don't, maybe that's, it's all encompassing. I don't know. Maybe something like that. Right. Something like that. Something to do with judgment. You know, you could, you could typify these things too, if you wanted, you know, if, if you needed to. Um, but it is, there is definitely something regal here, but something that someone who understood the Old Testament would pick up on, I believe. Yeah. Well, and take take for example the the rainbow itself. I mean, obviously the, right. the rainbow itself is a clear <laughs> reference back to you know Genesis nine, right? Right. But the, the fact that it's described as being like an emerald, I think, is yeah. significant. And to be fair, the emerald green is is in reference to the rainbow. Just to be clear, right? So so God is described as red, and the the rainbow is green, and the rainbow is green. But I think it's significant because uh, in the Septuagint, at least, the same word for green here mm-hmm. is used to describe the stones on which the names of the tribe were written. Yep. So I think that is significant in showing that, you know, there is a kind of not only the promise which God made to all of humanity, but also the promise which he made to the means by which he will save humanity, you know, through through Israel and through, you know, the, and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So I I. I mean, there is a lot of symbolism here. I, I mean, mean, an emerald belonged to Judah, if I'm not mistaken. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of stuff to unpack here, really. <laughs> well, the and then the other connection with the rainbow, I think you're right, Zelwyn, the, the primary 
story that comes to mind is the the promise about the flood after the flood. But also, if you if you simply think of um, what we were saying back with Exodus twenty four, beneath his feet is the sky, and so all around him is a rain. You know, the rainbow appears in the sky, and so around God's throne, if you're going to be coming into heaven, you would have to pass through, you know clouds. You would have to pass through the rainbow and then you could finally um, get to him. Yeah. And this is something that, you know, um, just kind of an odd point here. A lot of guys like to put on, you know, their thinking glasses and their calabash pipes, you know, they're looking like a smug Wojak meme. And they're like, you're talking about <laughs> heaven as if it's up in the sky or hell as if it's below. And to that we say, yes, we are, because that is how the Bible presents it. Now, whether that occupies physical space, you know, that's that's what they're trying to say. But right. the fact is, this is how the Bible presents it. And in a very real sense, yes, heaven is above and hell is below. And uh, that's not an insignificant thing. Um, yes. heaven, is, heaven is a place that is above. And we can leave it at that without having to get all well actually on the situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. God accommodates. This is part of the throughout revelation there is accommodation going on and so when he appears to people and when he brings people up to him naturally then you will see the sky beneath his feet and you would pass you know it would it would be through a cloud that you would enter into his presence well don't don't overlook the fact here either that the throne is described as being stand, as being in heaven and then everything else is described as being around him you know, around right. him is the rainbow, around him are the thrones, around him are the living creatures, you know, around him are the angels. So in other words, there is also a confession of the centrality of God in the midst of all of this, too. You know, this isn't just God off in yep. the corner right. and then everything else kind of around him. No, this he is he is the center. He is the the the, the driving point. I mean, this is the whole this is yep. where we're going towards. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, the. I don't know how you guys feel about the beatific vision, if that's part of your hope. I used to I used to find that like the idea that we would just spend eternity looking at God, you know, that 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 seems too static, as the kids say. But then <laughs> what what would be better? You know, you tell me what would you rather do if if you could see God? Um, and then you could say, you know, I've I've had enough of that. I think I'm ready to go, you know, dig a garden or something. I mean, I think I think when you get to chapter 21 and 22, you do have the picture of a city and there's business and there's work and there's things to be done. But if I, I just don't want people to too quickly throw off the beatific vision because there is something to what you're saying there, Zelwyn, that heaven is centered on God. He's not on the periphery. He's in the middle. Well, all I have to say is, is I've never seen Dante and Willie in the same room. So <laughs> I know his feels on, on all of this. Absolutely. But that being said, the throne is not alone. So God's throne is in the center and all around him are, you get um, the next detail. There are other thrones and there's 24 of them. Um, they're called the thrones of the elders. I don't know what you guys make. There's different, I think there's some different theories about who these elders are whether they're the 12 sons of Israel and then the 12 apostles, or if you want to take maybe the 12 writing prophets and then the 12 apostles. Those are the two theories that I've encountered and heard. That makes good sense to me in that you have 
Old Testament and New Testament saints joined together around the throne. I, I don't know if you feel strongly about that either way, guys. I'm I'm not sure that we can definitively identify these elders. I think that might be a little bit misguided, especially because, you know, some of the, the sons of Israel, for example, are not exactly the paragons of True. of piety. I but I do think that there is something to be said of the, the twice twelve nature of it, you know, two times twelve is a, a symbol perhaps of the fullness of the church that you have the saints of old, as well as the saints, the new saints or the apostles, if you will, are, are gathered together in worship of the Lord around the throne. Kind of a, you know, Jew and Gentile come together in one body, you know, one new man. Yeah, and you get it elsewhere, you know, the 12 tribes equals 12 apostles. Yeah, or, you right. know, and together, you know, equaling the church. So, yeah, I like anything where the church predominates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, um, and you do you get it spe- specifically, even though Zoan's right, you know, Dan is not held up as this wonderful tribe, right. but the 12 gates do have the names of the 12 tribes on them, and the 12 foundations have the names of the 12 apostles. I guess we'll have to see if Judas, would, I mean, that's hard to believe that um, the name of Judas would be written yeah. on well, yeah, well, the Yeah, well, Dan would, see, would make it almost sound that way. I mean, if it's not that, it's Matthias or Paul. Right. Well, to be fair, in the list of the, the 144,000, Dan is not mentioned. Right. That's fair. That's fair. That's no. right. Joseph Joseph's double gets mentioned. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So, I, I mean, if, if you do want to think of it in terms of, like, elders of Israel and the apostles, you'd have to exclude members like Dan. But like I said, I, I really do think that this is just a picture of the church as, you know, as the new man, as one man worshiping the Lord. Yeah. Okay. So then um, in addition to, you know, the the elders who would represent human figures, um, you also have the living creatures that are mentioned mm-hmm. here. And so you have both both angelic and human, you know, human beings around the throne. The four living creatures, of course, go back to uh, Ezekiel's vision when the Lord came down and his throne um, was more like a chariot driving around. Ezekiel sees that in Babylon, if I'm not mistaken, right? So God is right. driving By his chariot canal. Yeah, around mm-hmm. um, in Babylon. And there are a, a couple of differences between the way Ezekiel describes the living creatures and the way that John describes them. I don't think that that's particularly problematic. In in the Revelation, the four creatures are all separate from each other. In Ezekiel, um, each of the cherubim have the four faces on the four sides of their heads. So John is, I, and you know, Again, maybe this goes back to what you were saying before, Zelwyn, about the visions. There's always this, even though they're seeing clearly and they're communicating clearly, there's always a bit of difficulty in actually saying, now, can you, you know, can you do a literal drawing of what John saw? Well, you know, that's why where these, these pictures or these creatures always have to be um, depicted as a tetramorph, you know, this kind of uh, really almost a we would say a symbolic rendering, but it's kind of literal in a way. As you said, there are some differences between Ezekiel's living creatures and Revelation's living creatures. I think one interesting one is having eyes all over the front and the back. Right. Implying that they can sort of see everything. 
that they're alert, that nothing really escapes their notice. Uh, they are watching, which is interesting, in my opinion. I'm not going to let you guys like have uh, these creatures here and not talk about them a little bit more than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, the, the purpose of the cherubim, as they're, they're called in Ezekiel specifically, I mean, they are the, the throne guardians. They are the ones who are in the immediate presence of God. And I, and I, I mentioned there too, especially because it says like around the throne on each side of the throne. So they are the ones who are immediately within God's presence. You know, they're, they're the closest to him of all of his creations. Well, and it's, and it's interesting that as bizarre as they appear, their design is obviously intentional and even right. functional, which right. is very interesting. Yeah. You can see this in Ezekiel. I mentioned the chariot in the, you know, in the ancient world, the, the chariot is the most, you know, powerful vehicle, so to speak. And so God's, uh, when God comes down onto earth, he doesn't just come down driving a lemon, you know, he comes with, with a powerful chariot and the creatures who pull his, his chariot would be, you know, greater than any, any horse that ever pulled around Pharaoh in his chariot. And I think that's, again, you talk about the function of the living creatures. They are, they convey the power, the authority, the majesty of God um, in a way that, you know, no horse ever could. Right. And of course, there are different interpretations on what these are. I honestly tend to go with them being God's, you know, agents, his heavenly representatives. Yeah. Um, I, I know that there's a patristic interpretation that says it's the four evangelists. Right. I mean, you get that's where you get the symbolism and many like gospel books or like altars of, of having these four living creatures. Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But at least within the text itself, it seems to be something more than that. Yeah. Zellin knows that I, he, because he made me a gospel book. Um, and he, <laughs> so he knows that I, that I love that tradition of the evangelists um, being represented by those four living creatures, but they carry out the same function, I suppose. But maybe it's maybe a helpful analogy is in the same way that the tabernacle is a copy of the heavenly, the heavenly things, you know, the gospels drive God, you know, they carry God's name through the earth. But I don't think that John is seeing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and, you know, himself as the eagle or something. <laughs> that would be a, a pretty difficult thing to stretch in there. Well, I, I think I think your suggestion really that these creatures are God's agents has a lot of merit to it because especially like in the the following chapters when you have the breaking of the seals it is not God or even the lamb who is speaking right, right. whenever, whenever the seal is broken, it is one of these creatures. Yeah. You know, so they, they act on God's behalf. They are carrying out mm -hmm. his will. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, I just want to say this real quick though. I fact, I think it's interesting that how little we actually hear directly from God within the book of revelation. It's always significant when you hear God speaking, but go ahead. Right. And it's just interesting. I mean, the four beasts are able to speak, um, they're able to do all kinds of things. So they're very active within this narrative here. Right. They're, do they're doing something, and John is struggling. Not even struggling. He's doing his best to describe what he sees and uh, without being totally undone. They're clearly designed with an intention. They're made with a purpose. Um, they're able to speak, to call, to tell people to look and see, to open up things, to do this or that. Yeah, they're clearly carrying out God's will here. 
within the text. Well, and I think that's the, you know, you mentioned the eyes a minute ago, Willie. In Ezekiel, you get mentioned that the cherubim are full of the spirit of God and that his spirit is what's animating them. And I, I would see that as part of why they have all these eyes is because the Holy, it's the Holy Ghost who is, I'm not saying they don't have their own will or they don't have their own abilities, but they are under the control. They are full of the Holy Spirit. And so just as the Spirit searches out the whole world, so the the Spirit's messengers, the, the Spirit's creatures are, you know, they carry those same eyes that could also be described as the Holy Spirit. Well, just to be clear real quick before we go to break, though, uh, the Spirit himself is described as being a torch of fire in <laughs> in front of the throne. So that's the seven the seven torches, which are the seven spirits. So th- we don't want to identify the creatures with the Holy Spirit, but yeah, I, I would see them as carrying out the will of the Spirit and also the yeah. Spirit, you know, animating them. Sure, the Spirit, the Spirit fills them just like the Spirit is gonna is gonna fill the Lamb. So the Lamb has the seven eyes and the seven horns, which are the Spirit of God. The seven spirits. We can talk about that in a minute, but yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that they are the Holy Spirit, but that he is the one who is animating them. Well, we're going to talk more about the Holy Ghost right after this here on A Word Fitly Spoken. He said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and David Apple talking about the book of Revelation and heavenly visions. So we are going through Revelation chapter 4. One quick thing we want to clear up before we move on into chapter 5, and that is what to make of the seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Yes, so the, the question sometimes comes up, are we talking about one spirit, here, the Holy Spirit, or are we talking about creatures of God, um, maybe similar to the the four living creatures that these are four, or I'm sorry, seven separate spirits. And you know where we're going to, what we're going to say here, I think already, uh, we're going to, to see this as the, the one Holy Spirit. And why does John use seven then? This goes into some of the numerology stuff that the seven that the reason that the spirit is often described in seven in a sequence of sevens is because the number seven carries with it the the connotation of fullness or completion or perfection, which of course would all be appropriate to apply to the Holy Ghost. 
Mm-hmm. And I think this is a good a good correction because you will hear occasionally heretical teachers saying that there are seven to nine Holy Spirits. It's mostly in fringe Pentecostalism that you hear it, but it is out there from from some uh, rather famous TBN style guys. I forget how they get to nine, but they do take seven uh, from Revelation and then pick up another couple of spares uh, <laughs> later on. And we just want to provide a corrective to that because, okay, now you've multiplied a person of the Trinity. And yeah. so very dangerous thing to do. Uh, there's one God and there's one Holy Spirit. Yeah, you'd have to you'd have to adjust your you couldn't use the word Trinity if there were if there were seven Holy Spirits, I assume that well, if it's Pentecostals, they may not even be Trinitarian. Anyways. Right, right. But you'd have to you'd have a deca decinity, something like that. <laughs> Depending on how many you you picked up. Yeah. Well, maybe just to finish out this chapter four real quick then, because it's going to tie right into what's going to happen in chapter five. Of course, you have the uh, the giving of glory and honor, you know, the singing of the old song, so to speak, with the elders worshiping him. And then, uh, you know, the casting down of their crowns by which they show that, you know, they are giving all authority, all power, all praise, all honor to the Lord. And, you know, this this imagery of worship is going to characterize the whole scene, really, I mean, yeah. even with the coming of the Lamb, but right. this the the worship is what is is going on in heaven at, at this moment. Yeah, maybe to go to go along with that, Zelwyn. If you notice how it ends up in chapter four, they are singing to the Lord God on the throne, and they the reason or the the work that's mentioned is creation. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So um, we're going to see in a minute when they sing to the Lamb, they sing about redemption. And of course, the the works of the Trinity are one, but the persons who are singled out often are singled out for for different works, even though we, we can just as easily say that the Son created us or that even the Father redeemed us because he's the one who sent the Son. Uh, but I But I do think if we're thinking of the action here in chapter four and five, there is a, we go from worship of the creator now in chapter five, we're going to add in, um, we also worship God and the lamb because not only did he create us, but he redeemed us as well. Right. And now could you imagine reading the book of Revelation in any other way, but with the atonement of the lamb of God at the center, without having Christ at the center and making it about some political entity centuries later or some kind of newspaper kind of approach to this instead of it ultimately being about the victory of Jesus Christ over over his enemies over sin death and the devil while there are certainly things for us contemporarily it's just to go back to the dispensationalist episodes for a minute you know just i just imagine what you lose when you make a certain group the center of your interpretation and not yeah. Jesus Christ I thought we were leaving the disputes behind, but this is good. <laughs> right. We, we, the, must, we must fight them any chance we get, someone. Right. <laughs> I said leave them in the dust, but, you know, not not, not quite the same thing. <laughs> no, no, you're right. I mean, we do want to see, I mean, especially because, as you said, you know, if, if, if this scene in that is happening in heaven is what is actually going to set the tone for the rest of the book, what is it that is that is setting the tone in chapter five? But in fact the victory of the lion of the tribe of Judah, you know, right. the victory of, 
of Jesus over all things, the redeeming of his people and the creation of his kingdom. Yeah. So what what happens then after the living creatures and the the elders join together in this worship of the one on the throne, John notices he's got something in his hand. Okay. So he sees a sealed up scroll in the hand of God seated upon the throne. And an angel comes out, a mighty angel. It's just, it's clarified for us, not just any old angel. And he asks this question, who is worthy? Who is worthy to take this scroll and to crack it open and read it, read it to us? And I think again, to go to just build off what Willie was saying, if if we if we take the book of Revelation as like a newspaper where, you know, you can read page one and you can read that article, but really what you want to do is get to the cartoons, the comics, or you want to read the newspaper section, or you know, you're just want you're just interested in checking the stonks. If that's your approach to the book, then you miss out that what what starts in chapter four is going to color everything else. So the victory of the sun the victory of the lamb is leading into everything that follows. And from this scroll, here's where you, you get it exegetically. From this scroll, all the subsequent visions are going to come. Well, and I think it's significant here too, that this scroll is described as being sealed up, which I think is probably a reference back to Daniel, where he is commanded to seal up the vision but now, yeah. instead of sealing up the vision, the vision is being broken open. Yeah. I think it, it points to the immediacy of the book of Revelation, you know, that this is something that is happening now, so to speak, as opposed to something that's going to happen way, 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 way in the future. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, right. we're just we're just dunking on Disby's left and right here. Is what yeah, I'm no, doing, that's so. that's that's perfect, because at the end of Daniel, <laughs> at the end of Daniel, the angel tells him, seal up the scroll because it is concerning things at the end. And right. now with what happens with Jesus, the end has come. It's time for the end. And so we got to we got to crack it open. Well, and, and it's very clear that this is it because you know, I wept because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to even look at it. Says John. Right. And and then enter the lamb of God. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so this is what I mean by there is a little bit of action here. It's not he doesn't just see everything all at once. There's there's a problem. The scroll can't be opened. No one is worthy. And then and then the angel says, "Stop crying, John. Here's here's the one who's worthy." And before you see Christ, you hear the announcement about him. So he's described this way, "The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered." for a purpose, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so everything, again, I've said this many times in the episode here, but I, I don't know, I guess it's my, it's my thing to hammer on. Everything that's going to follow, follows because of the conquering of the, of the Lamb of God. So the resurrection of Jesus, his death and resurrection, bring about what's going to happen in the book of Revelation. Yeah, no, I, I think that's good. But I mean, it's also noteworthy here then that once we see the lamb himself with his seven horns and seven eyes, you know, which is something, again, described as the seven spirits of God filled with the Holy Spirit is like you said, you know, he goes, he takes the scroll and he and once he has done so, the actual taking of the scroll prompts the beginning of the new song. 
And as I think it's significant, therefore, since the new song is meant as, you know, like you said, singing about redemption. I do think that the the taking of the scroll from the hand of the one on the throne is also a picture of what Christ has done. So yeah. it, it points to, again, some of the, I guess you'd call it symbolic nature of what's happening here. Right? Well, and, then, and then this very significant thing. So he takes the scroll, the four living creatures, the elders fall down before the lamb. Uh, they each have a harp and bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And so joined together with this new song that they are all singing is the prayers of the saints, or are the prayers of the saints. Now, very significant. So now you have church in heaven and on earth once once again uh, mingling together here, that what the saints are doing is right there with what the elders and what the beasts are doing. So everyone working together that culminates in this in this new song. Yeah. Uh, and very significant, I think, that the prayers of the saints are here present, that they have been taken up to heaven, or, or at least present in heaven, depending on how you want to view who the saints are here. No, I think that's right, because the what happens after he takes the scroll um, is you get this new song, and there's different kinds of beings who are, who are singing different words, right? So the once the creatures and the elders kind of finish their part in the song, then in the middle of chapter five, uh, John looks around and now he sees, in addition to what he saw before, he sees the myriad angels and he hears them singing and they're joining in in singing to the lamb and to God. And then the whole he hears every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So you get the whole scope of creation is all unified in the worship of uh, of Jesus along with his father. And in Jesus, of course, you have the mention of the Holy Spirit. So it's it's all caught up in Trinitarian worship. Can we, before we, we get off of this you know, too far... I, I'd like to talk a little bit about the harp itself, because I think that's an interesting image. All right. The the image there, of course, is, well, the, the word is a cathara, which isn't exactly a harp. I mean, it's like a harp, but uh, the image is a, is a pretty Greek one, is what I'm saying. What, Orpheus? Is, or is that what you're saying here? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, the, the kind of Greek harp, the kind of more Orphean kind of looking instrument, and it's it, I, I don't know. It, it would the way it would have been played then is you'd be kind of you know playing a little melody underneath the song that you are singing. I mean that's that's the image here, and I'm just wondering you know how do we how do we incorporate that with our understanding of what's happening here? You know what is that? How does that influence the way that we look at this? I mean how would that even under, influence our understanding of of the worship that's happening here? You know I I don't know. I think it's an interesting image. What, what do you what do you want to do with it? <laughs> Well, I don't know. You just you just kind of dropped a bomb here on me. I mean, are you actually saying that like this is a reference to Greek culture, maybe, or what? I mean, we can go with Orpheus if you want. We can go with Apollo if you really want. But Orpheus is much more interesting. Well, I and I I don't mean like bringing in like paganism or something like that. But it is it is very much a Greek cultural kind of image. Sure, sure. Well, what's your hot take? <laughs> well, I I think I think it's interesting, if only because you know this this blending together of well, maybe blending is the wrong word, but you know, it may be drawing on what David is doing in the Psalms, but you know, also incorporating kind of a, a more Gentile imagery into it. I think it it speaks to the 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 nature of the church here. Well, it's kind of like okay, so with 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 Orpheus and all the Orphic stuff. I mean, he's most famous for being one of the few to have ever um, 
visit Haiti or visit the underworld and right. then return. And his music and song even have power over Hades. So if if we want to see that as a symbol for Orpheus and then bring this into here, well, these are the ones who have now conquered death. Yeah. The four living creatures and the 24 elders here in heaven, each having that symbol of, of you know, power over Hades, which is kind of what Orpheus harp is. Why not? Why not go with that? That could work. It could work. And maybe, finally, maybe, finally putting that humanities degree to work, guys. Thanks, fellas. Appreciate I that. I love it. I, no, I you're think, welcome. I, I think that's great because, and maybe one way to get at what you're saying, Zelwyn, another way, another angle uh, to approach it. If if they just had either purely Jewish instruments, so if if it was just a mention of David's lyre or something like that, or if it was an otherworldly instrument. Right. So John sees some, you know, they had some instrument that I had never seen before. But the fact that he references a human instrument that's taken up into heavenly worship, that's elevated here, I think is that's an insight. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought about it before. Yeah. You know, and although I really like the, the dead connection we just made, but it is a festal uh, instrument, too. Right. Yeah. The, the instrument was always used in like in Greek culture as a way of like epic poetry, like it was the, the accompaniment for epic kind of songs. Right. So, you know, very much what is happening here is a kind of epic, you know, they are singing a new ode uh, as the actual Greek word is, you know, this is something that is declaring a great and wonderful thing, you know, what God has done. So, I mean, there, it, it just, I think it is interesting though, that it is bringing all of this kind of cultural image imagery into the worship of the Lord. Yeah, I dig it. I like what I'm picking up what you're laying down. <laughs> so, so let let me go on then to the the actual words that they sing. I think are are worth pointing out. The if you look at at the end of verse ten, they they end this way. They say, you know, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll. And then there's a number that you have ransomed all these. You have ransomed a new people from every nation, every tribe, every language, and turned them into a new kingdom that will reign on earth. And we, I've been mentioning this before, but maybe in the last couple minutes, we can just kind of dwell on this a little bit. The purpose of redemption and the, the song that is sung in heaven is not complete until that reign or what happens in heaven is going to happen on earth. And that's, that's, again, maybe another way to think about how this scene connects with the rest of the book. The rule of the Lamb, the worship of the Lamb, can't remain remote in heaven. It has to fill not just the liturgy of the church on earth, but it has to fill the entire world. And yeah. that's, what, that's what happens in the rest of the book. Right. And as those two are, are brought together, the, the new heavens and the new earth. Of note here, and I said that we wouldn't go over time in this segment, but we're probably going to. I just want to point out, as I always do for some reason, uh, out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. This is imagery that's going to come up uh, elsewhere in this book, that in the eschaton, at the end of days, there are still distinctions between people. And when we when we when we totally do this thing where we say, well, everybody's all the same. Everybody's going to be like some hue of brown in the future. And that's what we want. Well, no, at the end of days, those distinctions between tribes, tongues, and nations still persist. 
at least in, in this way, they persist enough that John can see all these different people yeah. who have been redeemed. And so those identities still persist even on into heaven, which I think is very significant, that God has made people different. And that's okay. We don't have to just soften it because that's what we want to do today. Oh, well, you know, there was no racism until Darwin. You know, people say things like that, like nobody had any concept of different people groups until then. Guys, <laughs> quit quit arguing that point. That's silly. That's utterly silly. Um, it's okay to embrace differences because yeah. there are differences. And God made people th- this way. And that's okay because God redeems all of them. And it's very obvious because... John doesn't really have a hard time explaining this. He's like, or, or you know, he's, he's, he's relaying the song. So the song makes it very clear out of every tribe, tongue and people and nation. So we are, we are reaching out to all of these different people and it's going to be evident as we'll see in later on in the text that that's what's happening. Well, and maybe, maybe this is my, my controversial take on this. If you go back to... Well, I thought I was doing the controversial take. Go on. I'm excited. Go. go on. <laughs> if you go back to Genesis 11 with the uh, with the Tower of Babel, the, the division of the languages that happens at that point, I don't, I don't think we should see the differences in languages as being something that is like, I don't know, part of the curse or something like that. I think what is happening here is that God is speeding up what would have happened normally sort of a thing. What was supposed to happen. And what was what, suppo- yeah, yeah. The, because the problem at Babel is they are not dispersing. And therefore, that division of the of the tongue is not happening. Well, and then what makes it controversial, I suppose, is that when you get to Pentecost, what, you're, what you have there is not a reversal of Babel, like it's sometimes presented, right, right. but just a miracle by which all, all tongues and languages and peoples, you know, in, at that time, can be understood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If it was a reversal, the gift of tongues would have been given to the people listening to Peter's right. sermon. Yeah. Not right. say the other way around. Yeah. And that's all that. To, and this is people are going to get a little, little, uh, all magic flute voice about this. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's fine. And this is only a problem that we have like in America and in parts of the West. Believe me, in the rest of the world, people are still cool with people being different. <laughs> well, cool to a cool with the idea, not always cool with each sure. other. Don't get me wrong. Sure. Well, and so yeah, so I guess my my point is just agreeing with you then, Willie, that you know that this these distinctions, this diversity, if you will, within humanity is something that is God given and something that is you know in a sense God pleasing. Yeah, and, and it's not and, something that disappears. Yeah, and interestingly, it's an act of God that brings them together at the end of days. Right. Right. Yeah. So. so good stuff. Well, all right. We are at time. David, any parting words for us on these two chapters? No, I think I think we've covered it. It's it's primarily about worship there. The activity in heaven is all caught up in worship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But again, just to repeat my point here through all of this, that activity of heaven is now going to come down to earth. And so as the Son opens the, the scroll, as the Lamb opens the scroll, the rest of the book comes out of that scroll. And we'll, and we'll cover that in future episodes. All right. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi and David Apple. David, thank you so much. To all you listening, God love you, and God bless.
And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 5. 